Um, so this weekend, we're starting a new series called Understanding the Old Testament. So there's a passage, actually it was in the, um, the little video, the little bumper video before, there's a passage that talks about the value of scripture that's a pretty popular passage. Maybe you've read it before. This is the passage, it's in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we can read that and we could go, Yep, I agree with that. All scripture is really important, right? It's God-breathed. It's useful for this, this, and this. And we go, yep, I believe that. And then we think about it and we go, wait, like, all scripture? Wait, like, every bit of it is? Like, even the Old Testament is? Like, what's the role of that in my life? And it can cause many of us, it's interesting, some of the conversations that I've had with people over the years, but, but um, a few recently as well, where they look at the Old Testament and they're like, I don't, I don't really know the role. If I'm a Christian, I don't know the role of the Old Testament in my life. Like, all, if, if you're newer to the Bible, if you're newer to Christianity, the Bible is made up of two parts, Right? So the Bible's made up of, the first part is the Old Testament, the second part's the New Testament. And the Old Testament's much longer than the New Testament, it's 39 different books. The New Testament's 26 different books, and it's smaller than the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament is before Jesus, right? And so it tells, I'll give you uh, some background here in a second, but it kind of tells the story from creation all the way up to about 2,000 years ago, right? So it tells everything before Jesus. And it tells of God's special relationship with one specific group of people, the Jews, this nation of Israel. God chose this particular group of people and his plan was to choose them to reveal himself to them in a deep, significant way and then that they then would show the world who God is. Like that was God's plan, right? So this is kind of, that's, that's the Bible. And so we can sit here and we could go, well, you know what? We're, I'm not, this isn't a Jewish synagogue. This is a Christian church, right? And we can go, I don't know what the value is of that first part of the Bible, especially if I don't have a Jewish background. And I understand that, like I can get that. You know, the Old Testament doesn't talk about Jesus specifically. But I want to challenge in this series that line of thinking for us. When I turned 30, I'm 42 now, when I turned 30, I wanted a new challenge. And so, um, like, I'm, as a kid, I played piano, and then I kind of got sick of piano, and I don't really know how to play any piano anymore. But I thought I should learn an instrument. So I got a guitar, and I thought, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. My brother's a good, a good guitar player. So he taught me some stuff. I had an intern at the time who taught me some stuff. And I started learning like some of these songs that we play, like some of these worship songs. And you know, I'm still not a great guitar player by any means, but I can play some of these songs. And when I first learned, it was so cool. It like opened up for me this whole new way to experience God. You know, like we can, if for me previously, it was like I would sing songs. So how do I experience God? I talk to him, I pray to him, I read in my Bible, right? Like I sing these songs to him. And all of a sudden, not only could I still sing these songs, but I could play this instrument to be able to worship God. It was so cool for me. It was like this whole new bubble, this whole new experience of being able to like worship and have inti intimacy with God was opened up for me. And that's my hope as we look at the Old Testament here. Like what we talk about in this series that maybe for some of you, you've not read it or you've not read much of it or most of your time is spent in the New Testament. You're like, I don't even know. I don't understand it. I don't know what to do with it. My hope is that in this series, we'd step back and we would go, wow, there's this whole new way for me to experience intimacy with God and get to know the God of the universe as we look into it. See, the Bible, the whole Bible tells one story 
right? There's really one big story. And so there's consistency, there's fluidity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're kind of two different parts of the same story, two different chapters, if you will, of the same story. And so you have this chapter of the Old Testament, you have this chapter of the New Testament. Actually, we're in a different chapter right now. We're in a chapter called the Church Age. And, and your life is actually writing part of the story. You ever think about that? Like that, is a, that, is a, that is an interesting thought. That's a thought-provoking thing. My life is writing part of this one big story that God is telling, that God is laying out. My life's contributing to that. But it's all one big story. And so when I think of it, when I think of the Bible as a whole, and when I think about the one big story of God, here's how I would summarize this. Hopefully this is helpful to you. The one big story that God is telling that starts in the Old Testament, continues in the New Testament, and continues in our lives today, and goes forward to things to come, is this. Go ahead to the next uh, slide there. It's the unfolding story about God lovingly calling the most precious part of his creation, that's us, that's you and me, human beings, the most precious part of his creation, he's calling to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, with the promise, there's promises attached to it, of transformation and eternal life to those that say yes to him, like we have a responsibility there, and condemnation and punishment to those that reject him. If, I, if I'm gonna summarize the entire Bible and, and God's story altogether in one sentence, that's how I would summarize it. And so I look at that and I go, this is what, this is what the Bible's about. Cover to cover, beginning in the Old Testament, continuing into the New Testament, continuing into our lives today. God, this unfolding story of God calling us, this, the, the pure, holy God, calling us, whispering to each person that he's created, the, the, peop, the people that are the masterpiece of his creation, Right? That's how the Bible first says. You and I are his masterpiece. He calls us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's very clear as he does that there's no other way to come to him. Not through the teachings of Muhammad. Not through the teachings of Buddha. Not through um, working really hard and trying to clean up my life and be worthy of it. Be worthy of him. There's no other way. He gives us the only way to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. All we have to do is we say yes to him. We go, yep, I believe this, and I give my life to you. I say yes to you. And then he promises us this beautiful thing of transformation. I had a great conversation with a guy at Trunk or Treat last night that was struggling with transformation. He's like, I trust, I believe, but he's struggling with allowing God to change him, even though he wanted it, allowing God to change him. God promises to transform us, make us more like himself, and to save us, to give us the gift, the promise of eternal life. And if we reject his call, then he respects our decision. He doesn't force any of us, right? But he respects our decision and he clearly makes a second promise to us of punishment and condemnation and rejection. Like th this is the story of the Bible. This is the one big story of the Bible. And the Old Testament is a huge part of that. And so let me ask you a question. What sense does it make for us if God gives us this big, vast story? It's one story. If we go, I don't really want to know that much about this part of the story. I want to spend all my time on this part of the story. That doesn't make sense, right? Because it's all one story. And we're saying, ah, I'm, not, I'm not that interested in that part of the story. 
I was, I was uh, reading a theologian, there's a pastor theologian, a guy named John Piper, um, just an incredible thinker and teacher, and he was talking about this idea of knowing parts of the, of the Bible, of God's big story, but not really understanding the whole, right? And he compared it, I thought, just thought this was so insightful, this, this clicked for me. He compared it to a sentence. And this is what he says, this is a quote, he says, the word boy does not have much meaning. The boy, the boy in the corner has more meaning. Feed the boy in the corner has even more. Feed the boy in the corner with the word of God makes the meaning even clearer. And he says, without this whole sentence, the meaning of the part, feed, would not be clear. And yet it's the parts that create the whole. And so both the parts and the whole are crucial for meaning to be transferred from one mind to another. And so he says, I rejoice at every effort to see the big picture of the Bible, the whole story, the narrative from creation to consummation. The clearer the whole, the clearer the parts. The more clearly we see the parts, the more accurately we will construe the whole. And I think that's insightful. Right, because we can be so focused. I'll bet you, as you sit here this morning, many of you know different parts of this, right? Maybe you read it on your own, you've heard it in sermons, you've been taught it, and maybe there's lots of other parts that you're not familiar with. And it's interesting how many people, I don't know if people feel like they have to confess this to a pastor, I don't know how many people go, I've never read the Bible. Listen, I gotta be honest with you, I've never read the whole Bible. And okay, that's fine, you don't have to confess to me, that's okay, right? But the reality is if we don't understand the whole and we don't have context with the whole, it's harder for us to understand the parts. And if we only see the parts, it's easy for us to miss the whole. You tracking with me? And so this weekend and through this series, we want to dig into the whole. I was talking to um, this guy. We had some meetings this past week and we had this guy come in and he was just talking to us about kind of church leadership stuff. And he asked me, he said, what, uh, what are you teaching on right now at your church? And I said, well, actually, we're uh, starting a series. We're kind of doing a little different series for us. We're starting a series on the Old Testament, just understanding the Old Testament. I said, I really want to help people like, see the value of it and dig into it in a deeper way. And he said, you know, I said, so interesting. He said, I have a, I can't remember if he, a relative. I can't remember if he said a cousin or an uncle or somebody. He said, I have a, a cousin, we'll say who um, was a really smart guy, and he had this ability with languages. Like, he could just pick up languages so easily, and he was a real intellectual guy. And he got a job at the CIA. Like, that was his job, like, doing language stuff with the CIA. And his dad, this guy who was talking to us, his dad was a pastor, and he said, so he, my dad would send him, like, all of this stuff to read because he cared about this guy, and he wanted this guy to get to know Jesus. And so he'd send him stuff in the Old Testament, he'd send him stuff in the New Testament. He said, and this guy... What just like gravitated toward the Old Testament. He said he very rarely read the New Testament stuff, but he gravitated to the Old Testament and he loved it. And as he got to understand it more and more and more, he became a Christian because he saw just by focusing on the Old Testament, the big story and how everything here was pointing to Jesus. And this guy eventually became a Christian. He's like, man, I'm so glad you're teaching the Old Testament. And so that's kind of my hope for this series. We're gonna, what we're going to jump into over the next eight weeks, we're going to take this all the way up to Christmas, right? And so it's going to kind of, Christmas is going to be our hinge in a way, right? The Old Testament builds up to Christmas. And what I hope to do is I hope to bring some clarity for us in understanding the Old Testament. I hope to whet your appetite a little bit as well so that when you leave here, you're hungry. 
and you go home this week and you're like, I want to understand this more. And you open your Bibles to dig into it. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I, I want to just kind of introduce um, at a high level the Old Testament. And here's how I want to do it. This, this is how I think, and hopefully it's helpful to you. I want to give you different layers of understanding the Old Testament. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some like high level, big picture things that are kind of different layers. They tell the story, the big picture of the Old Testament in different ways from different perspectives. And so I have maybe three or four of these kind of layers that I want to share with you. And in subsequent weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dig in, we're going to kind of dive bomb and we're going to dig in more deeply to some of the bigger chunks of the Old Testament so that we understand the context of each of those in a little bit deeper way. So that's, that's the plan for this morning. I want to say this too. I, I shared this a couple weeks ago in service. There's a study that uh, was talking, it talks about spiritual growth. And one of the conclusions of the study is that for you and I, if you sit here this morning and you're like, I want to grow as a Christian, that one of the results of this study was that um, you have to have this as a big part of your life. Like reading the Bible, and I know some people don't love to read, you can listen to it, right? Our phones are a very easy way, there's all kinds of apps that you can listen to this. But interaction with the scriptures, with God's word, it is imperative for us if we want to grow as Christians, okay? And so as we dig into this, hopefully it will help each of us grow as well. So um, let's do it. So let's jump in. So again, the Old Testament is made up of 39 different books. And most of those books are longer than the New Testament. So again, the New Testament is 26 books, but a lot of them are a little bit shorter. And so the Old Testament is pretty long. And the books are, are, many of them are very different from one another. And those differences can make a huge difference in how we understand, how we interpret those books. And so let me explain. There's six uh, six different genres of books that are written in the Old Testament. Depending on who you read, they might label them a little bit differently, but this, this helps me. Um, six different genres of books. And if you don't understand what genre those books are written in, it can kind of mess with how we understand those books and how we interpret those books, right? And so um, we are a church that, if you're newer to Grace Church, we're a church that looks at the Bible and we go, we believe this. We would call this the inerrant word of God. And so what is here is God's words to us and God is perfect. He doesn't make errors, right? And so what he gives us is perfect as well. And so we take that and we hold it really high and we say this is really important to us, right? And so we understand it and we believe it. That being said, that doesn't mean that you take everything literally. Let me say that again. Because we believe the Bible to be true, 100% true, that doesn't mean that you take everything written in there literally. It means that you take it appropriately, right? Because some things aren't meant to be literal. Some things are figurative or metaphorical. And so to understand what's what, we have to like understand the different genres of the passage. And when we understand the genres, then most of those passages or books in the Bible that we read, it's really clear what the meaning is, right? Like when, when, whenever we read something, in order to have meaning, I have to understand what the author's intent was, right? And so for us to understand the author's intent, when we understand like the genre of the books, usually it's pretty clear. Like it's pretty clear what he means by this. Sometimes it's a little bit less clear, but most of the time it's very clear. And so there's six different genres that I think are really important for us to understand when we're picking up the Old Testament and we're reading it. So hang with me here. Let me just go, go ahead to the next slide. These are the different genres. You can't see that too terribly well. I'll read it to you. So first we have historical narrative. And so this is kind of a history of Telling the story of history, 
right? And so we have Gen- the first part of, I'm sorry, Genesis, first part of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, parts of Daniel and Jonah, parts of Jonah, right? Okay, so that's the first one, historical narrative. Next we have books of law. These are like law books, right? And so the second part of Exodus falls into there, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. The next ones are books of wisdom, wisdom books. And so you got Job, you got Proverbs, probably the most famous one, Ecclesiastes, those are all wisdom books. Then you got poetical books, poetry, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. And then you have prophecy, that's the last big genre. And you can see all the different prophetic books there. I'm sorry, there's two more, the prophetic books there. And then the last one's apocalyptic. Sometimes people lump apocalyptic and prophetic together. I separate them, I think it's helpful that way. And so let me, let me just kind of quickly explain to you um, what those different genres are about and like how, why it's so important for us to understand those genres in trying to interpret the Bible and understand the Old Testament. So the first one, historical narrative. So these are stories of the history of God's people. And as stories of history, do you think you take that literally or not literally? Literally, Right. And so we would read like First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, and we would go, those kings and those prophets that it talks about in there were real people, and they really did what the Bible says there. Even the miraculous things that are like supernatural, we go, we believe it. We believe that those things happen. These are historical books. They're telling the history, the historical story of the nation of Israel. The second one, the books of law. The books of law are books of law, like that's what they are. They tell laws. And so this is what God says is right and good and that we should do and what God says is not right and is not good and we shouldn't do, right? And so they're all about holiness. And so there's like, one of the things that it says in, in these is, be holy because I am holy. That's what God says. And so they teach us how to be holy as he is holy. And so there's statements that are often very specific and very direct. That's the books of law. How about wisdom books? Wisdom books are really practical and they share this truth that affects the way that we live our lives. So the book of Proverbs, for example, if you've ever read Proverbs, it's one of my favorite books. It's filled with these short, pithy little sayings that express wisdom and kind of general truth for our lives concerning our life from a divine perspective. That's what these wisdom books are about. So they're very practical to our lives that are a lot of wisdom. Poetical books are very much like poetry that we might study in like an English literature class today. And so they, they use poetical tools like parallelism and repetition and, and rhythm, rhythmic balance. And they often use metaphor and like figurative language, right? And so let me give you an example. So, so we don't take everything in the poetry literally, right? So let me give you an example. In Psalm 63, 7 and 8, it says, because you are my help, so this is the psalmist talking to God. He says, because you're my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And we go, well, that's poetry. It's using figurative language. That's not saying that God literally has hands like ours and big wings, right? That's not what that's saying. It's talking about God's protection for us, God's provision for us, right? And so poetical books, we don't take everything literally. That wouldn't make sense, right? We take it appropriately. Prophecy. 
Uh, prophecy was often, often used like this combination of figurative language and literal language. And what it did was proclaim God's heart and predict God's judgment. That's what prophecy does. And so it kind of used, sometimes it was very direct and very literal. You are, not taking, you are taking advantage of the poor. If you don't stop doing this and turn to me, here's the judgment I'm bringing on you. Sometimes it's very literal. Sometimes it's a little bit more figurative. So it's a mixture of both of those things, right? Apocalyptic literature used is, is very figurative. We did a series on Daniel not too long ago, and you got a little bit of a glimpse of that in some of these visions that God gave Daniel. Those visions were not literal things that were happening, but they were figurative. They were metaphorical, describing things that were coming, right? And so uh, apocalyptic uses detailed imagery to predict, to proclaim and predict things that are to come that are like otherworldly, spiritual worldly. And so we'll dig into this a little bit more in the weeks to come, but I wanted you to like understand if we're going to pick up, if you're going to go home this week and you're going to pick up the Old Testament and read it, understand first of all what genre you're in, that book that, that you're reading is in. It will help us in our understanding and interpretation. You, you tracking with me? Okay, so, so do me a favor. In your program, so I've given you a couple layers. In your program, I want to give you another layer. There's a little timeline in there. I see some of you have already pulled it out. There's a timeline in here that I, I just, I want you to get your bearings with this a little bit. This was, this was helpful to me. Um, so that, again, this is another layer of understanding kind of the big picture of the Old Testament. This, by the way, um, in the lower right-hand corner, I, I got it, I found it on a site called alwaysbeready.com that was, is actually a pretty good site. It might be something that would be interesting to some of you. It was, it's um, written by a guy who is a Calvary Chapel guy. So this, this interesting. This church used to be a Calvary Chapel church, which is a denomination. We have real similar theology. And uh, this is a Calvary Chapel guy. It was really a helpful site um, if you want to check that out. But that timeline, I think, is helpful for us. And again, trying to just kind of get our bearings and understanding what the Old Testament is talking about. So let me just quickly, in five minutes or less, let me highlight some of these things so you get an idea of the flow of the Old Testament. So if you look on the top left side, top left side of your timeline, like there's creation, right? You see a little earth up there. There's creation. And at some point, um, earlier than 4,000 BC, at some point, God creates Adam and Eve, right? That's, that's part of the beginning of his creation. Adam and Eve are the first two people. By the way, we believe that Adam and Eve were the first two people. I don't believe that they were symbolic people. I believe that they were the first two people, right? So at some point, God creates, and you can read about that, um, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, there's different questions on how long that creation took. There's some people that are like, no, it's a, it literally took seven 24-hour periods, seven days, right? A little seven-day creation. And they would say the earth is pretty young. There's other people that would go, no, it's not. A day in the eyes of God can be much longer than 24 hours, and actually the earth is pretty old. And there's a if you've been in some Christian circles, there's people that argue back and forth about that, and they want to they fight you about that. We're not going to fight about that. At some point, God created everything. It, it, sometime earlier than 4,000 BC, he created Adam and Eve, right? And then you go on a little bit more, you have the flood, Noah's flood. So that's 2400, 2300 BC. You can read about that in, early in the book of Genesis as well. You go on a little further, uh, 2165 BC, a guy named Abraham was born. Abraham is a very important person in the Bible. Do you know why? 
because the nation, the entire nation of Israel, all of the Jews trace back to him, right? They all go back to Abraham. And so Abraham is the one that God chose. You are my chosen person. I'm making a covenant with you. And your descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore. And through you, the world will be blessed. That's the promise he made to Abraham. So Abraham is the very beginning of the Jews, of the Jewish nation. And he goes on from there and you see in 1876, you see Jacob, right? Jacob moves his family to Egypt. His son Joseph is in Egypt and he's a really important person. There's this famine. I told the story not too long ago. There's this famine. He moves his people, his family over to Egypt and they're there for 430 years. They become slaves in Egypt. Eventually God raises up this man named Moses. Moses is another incredibly important person in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, incredibly important person. And God uses Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh. What does he say to Pharaoh? Remember? Let my people go. Yeah. He says, let my people go, right? He says, let my people go. And so he goes, and the nation of Israel leaves there. God does these miraculous, amazing things. And the nation of Israel becomes free. They wander in the desert. Eventually, they get to the promised land. So in 1406 to 1399 BC, Israel conquers part of the promised land, right? After that, you have this time of judges where there's really, they forget about God. And every man kind of does his own thing. And God raises up these judges to kind of wake them up and go, come back to me. What are you doing? And then they come back to God for a little bit of time. And then they rebel again. And they kind of forget him and they do their own thing. That's the time of judges there, uh, 1350 to 1051. But then in 1051, there's a big change in the history of Israel because they get their first king. God gives them a king. And it's a guy named Saul. And Saul um, starts out good and very quickly it goes downhill from there. And so he's the first king of Israel. He reigns for 40 years. It's interesting. The first three kings all reign for 40 years, right around 40 years. And so you have Saul. Saul's heart goes away from God. God gives the kingship to David, right? King David. David's the second king. David's a man after God's own heart. He makes lots of mistakes, but he loves God. After David dies, his son Solomon becomes the next king. He's the third king. He goes for another 40 years. Solomon starts out great, so good. But by the end of his reign, he's worshiping other gods. He's really turned his back to God, right? And he has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is a knucklehead. He makes terrible decisions, right? And through his son, the nation splits. And so um, right at 931, 931 BC, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. Actually, it splits this way. And you have the northern kingdom, which is most of it. It's a big kingdom. It's 10 of those tri- 10 or 11 of those tribes are part of it. 10 of those tribes are a part of it. And they're called Israel. They're the northern kingdom. Then you have the southern kingdom is the other part. And it's called Judah. And it splits. And so when you read in First and Second Kings, you're reading about kings in the northern kingdom in Israel. And you're reading about kings in the southern kingdom. So they actually have two nations, two sets of kings. Neither of them really follow God. And so the, the northern kingdom's really bad. You read uh, the, the book of Kings, the two books of Kings, there's not one good king in the northern kingdom, okay? And so in 722, God sends this nation Assyria. He says, he tells them over and over again, they're gonna conquer you. They're gonna conquer you. If you don't turn to me, they're gonna conquer you. 722, they conquer them. The northern kingdom's gone. They're done, right? Southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer. 586, I think it's 586, uh, 605, and then later 586. Uh, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. 
And so no longer is there a nation of Israel and they're exiled into Babylon for 70 years. Finally, in 539, so this is just a little bit of history, I'll be quick with this. In 539, Persia, Medo-Persia, conquers the Babylonian Empire, and then all these Jews that are in captivity in Babylon, the king says, King Cyrus says, you can go back home if you want. And so they do. Many of them go back home, and they start over, and they rebuild the temple there. The temple is destroyed. That's kind of the hub of of, uh, their community. They rebuild the temple in 515. Uh, you read the book of Nehemiah, and they, they, they rebuild this wall around Jerusalem as well, 52 days. And then in four, somewhere around 450 to 430, the book of Malachi is written. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So somewhere around 450 to 430, the book of Malachi is written. And guess what happens after that? Silence for the next 450 years. Silence. God gives no more prophets, God gives no more prophecies, no more inspired scriptural writings. 450 years. You know what happens 450 years later? This guy, right? That's when Jesus comes. And, so, and they were waiting for him. That's the amazing thing. They were waiting, they were expecting him. But he was different than what they were expecting. We'll get to that a little bit more later. So, so that's the timeline. I, I want you to just have that. It's helpful. Some people, maybe you crumple it up and throw it away. You play, play basketball with it. It's fine. Some of you, maybe you keep it in your Bible, and it will help you just understand the flow of the Old Testament. Let me give you uh, another layer, and I, and I, I got to be quick with this. Oh, man. Oh, man. I got to be really quick. Uh, let me give you part of another layer with this. Uh, so there, I, I read an article this week that I thought was really helpful. So it was the guys that translated the, the Bible into the English Standard Version. So there's different translations of, of our English Bible. So one of them is English Standard Version. And they were talking about some of the big picture theology of the Old Testament. And I thought it was really helpful. And they gave like five big picture things. So this is another layer of understanding the whole of the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll be really quick here with this. But the first thing that they talked about is monotheism. So in, in the, what the, the God that the Bible describes is different than any other God. Where we would read that monotheism is one God, right? You worship one God. And maybe we read that or think about that and we go, well, yeah, that, that's normal, right? That's not normal. It wasn't normal among religions back then. It's actually not normal among religions today either. There are not many monotheistic religions. And uh, Ju- the Judaism, who God was showing himself to, he was a different kind of God. He wasn't like the Roman gods or the Greek gods or other pagan gods, but he was good and he was righteous and he was holy and he was all-powerful, and yet he wanted to have a role in his creation's lives, right? And so there's a passage in Exodus 34 that kind of describes him. It says this, that, so you get the nature of God. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, this is his character, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And you read that and you're like, that's, that's a different God than, some of these, than all of these other religions purport. He's different. He's holy. He's long-suffering. He's patient with us. And he loves us, right? 
So the, so the first part is this monotheism. Second part, and I can be quick with this, is creation and fall. And so the Old Testament tells us about how God is the creator God. He made everything that is. He's all powerful, right? And then at some point, you and I rebelled against him. It started with our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, right? They rebel, they make a decision to not listen to what God says, and it says all of creation is affected by that. You and me are affected by that because of their choices, right? We have this, this we call it inherited sin. Like, you, no one has to teach a baby to go, mine, right? No one teaches a baby that. They just know how to do that. Selfishness and sin is like inherent in who we are. It started with our ancestors. And so there's this creation and fall. Go ahead to the next uh, little click there. Uh, this is a quote from them. The one creator God made the first human beings, Adam and Eve, with dignity and purpose. Their calling was to live faithfully to God and to spread the blessings of Eden throughout the earth. Because Adam and Eve betrayed God's purpose, all people since the fall are beset with sins and weaknesses that only God's grace can redeem and heal. And so tells the story. Big picture theology, Old Testament, it tells the story of God creating everything and us falling, us rebelling. Go to the next one, election and covenant. And so at some point, God chooses to separate one group of people. This is election. So he starts with Abraham and he goes, I choose you. And even though you are an old man at this time and you have no children, I am gonna bless you. You're gonna have descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore and your, your people are gonna bless the world. So he chooses one man and this nation comes from him. Right? And so there's this election part there, and he makes this covenant with them. And he says, through your, your descendants, the world is going to be blessed. And so that's a big un idea, understanding of the Old Testament, this election and this covenant that he makes with them. Go to the, the, go to the next one, covenant membership there. Covenant membership. So this is kind of the fourth major part. And so as people that are part of this covenant, God has some expectations for them. Right? He has some requirements for them. These are, this is where the book of laws comes in. And he says, I want you to live this way. Be holy as I am holy. Right? To be members of this covenant, this is how you're supposed to be. This is how you're, you're supposed to act. And so it starts off with the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20. It starts off with the Ten Commandments, and then it expounds on that after that. And so there's this requirement. And it's interesting None of them could do it. Like, follow these laws. None of them can follow them. In fact, in the law itself, there was like a caveat saying, you're not going to be able to do this. So when you mess up, here's what you're supposed to do. You know what it is? Sacrifice an animal. Right? And so there's this idea, even in the Old Testament, maybe you've heard of like animal sacrifices that they used to do. And you're like, what is that all about? Well, God gives them these rules. And he says, when you mess up, blood covers sin. There has to be this shedding of blood to pay for what the wrong that you've done. And so they go and they would, they would kill these animals. What do you think that's pointing to? Cross, right? All that is pointing forward to Jesus. And so they couldn't do it on their own. When they messed up, there had to be bloodshed, right? That points us to our need for a savior who shed his blood for us. You tracking with me? Big picture stuff. Okay, uh, let, me get, let me give you one more. Go to the eschatology one. I can be real quick with this. Eschatology is a fancy theological word for like end times, future things, things to come. And so you read the Old Testament and the Old Testament doesn't just tell the story of things happening then, but it also tells of what's to come one day. Things like blessing, judgment, punishment, 
eternal life, right? And so that's all part of the theology of the Old Testament as well. All right, I flew through that. I realize that. I've thrown a bunch of stuff at you. Let me, let me end by giving you a few things that I want you to take away and I want you to think through in your own life. Um, so like f- four big takeaways as I read a kind of high level of the Old Testament. Here's the first one. God chases after us because he loves us. God chases after us. So you see this all throughout, like a million times in the Old Testament. He was chasing after this group of people, the Israelites, who were just running from him. They were rebelling against him over and over and over again. Then their life would get terrible and they'd go, God, please rescue me. And God does. He would come rescue them. And then they would slowly start to turn away and start running away from him again. And God chases and chases and chases. Why? Because he loves them. Not because he wants to punish them. He doesn't have to chase them to punish them. Right? He can declare punishment. He chases them because he wants them to turn to him. And here's the thing. He chases us too. The same reasons. Because he loves us. Right? He chases me because he loves me. So the question is, Am I running from him? Or have I stopped to rest in him? That's the first thing I see in the Old Testament. Man, God chases after us because he loves us. Here's the second thing. God cares about our holiness and how we live. God cares about our holiness and how we live. So you see this. I mean, this is really clear in the Old Testament. There's lots of laws, right? Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It's all throughout there. God cares about how we live. He's a holy God. He wants us to be like him. He cares about that, right? And he cares about how we live too. And so I challenge you, like in your own life, are you, are you living for holiness? You know, sometimes we can, get, we can get a little weird about this as Christians. And we go, well, I'm saved by grace. It's not by anything that I do. And so I just kind of live my life how I want to. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. That's some like weird distortion of it. God cares about how we live. Do we care about how we live? Do we read the Bible and go, I want to live this way? I'm going to try hard to live this way. God, help me live this way. So God cares about our holiness and how we live. Here's the third thing. God wants our hearts, not just our moral actions. Yep, he cares about how we live, but he doesn't want us to just do the right thing just because. Or he doesn't want us even to do the right thing because we fear judgment from him. That also is not biblical Christianity. Yep, I'm going I'm to stop doing wrong and I'm going to start doing right because I don't want to experience punishment from God. The reason is he wants our hearts. And if he has our hearts and we love him and we understand how much he loves us, that drives our living, right? Why, why did so many of you go last night to help over there at the middle school? I hope it wasn't because I'm trying to earn points with God. I hope it wasn't. I hope it was because I love Jesus and I know he loves me and I want other people to experience him. So I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do some hard things. I'm going to do this, right? Here's our last one, fourth one. We need a savior. I just said it a second ago. You look at all of these laws in the Old Testament and there was no way that they could keep them. It was impossible. There was a caveat in the law. When you mess up, right, you got to do this. It shows us, it showed them how much they needed a savior. They knew one was coming. God was clear. He was sending one who even, you know, you read in Isaiah, who even would die for their sins. He would bear their punishment, right? They knew that one was coming. They knew they needed one. The question is, do we know that we need one? Like, do I understand? When I read, I, I read the lives of the, the Israelites, and I don't read it like, man, 
what is wrong with them? They're so rebellious. I read it and I'm like, I'm just like them. I, I could do exactly the same thing or I've done exactly the same thing, right? They need a savior and we need a savior too. Do we recognize that need? So I know I like threw so much at you. I'm gonna have to make a couple changes here in the next service. I threw a lot of information at you, but I hope like some of the different layers it kind of begins to stick. And, and like the bit, you could step back and you can say, this is the big picture of what God is doing. Here's the Old Testament part of the story. And here's how it's starting to point me toward the New Testament and who Jesus is and what he's done. Next week, we're going to dig into, if you want to do a little reading ahead, we're going to dig into the first five books. Okay, so it's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And we're just going to kind of dig into that. And they're long books, so we're going to have to summarize a lot. But I think it will be helpful for us in understanding some of that historical narrative and the law stuff. Okay? So I'm going to invite the band up and I'm going to pray.